0: Hello everyone, this is Space Café Podcast and I am Marcus. Good to have you back. Remember the last episode in which Nicole Stott, the two-time Space Shuttle astronaut, said that she probably would never have become an astronaut if she had known how hard and difficult the training was? Especially when it comes to some of the theoretical subjects she had to swat up for. Yes, yes, often it is good not to know the whole truth, right? But you know what? I got curious, and so I picked up my phone and called Embry Riddle, the venerable university that laid the groundwork for her career as an astronaut. The toll-free number you have dialed is not toll-free. if called from outside the United States. You will be charged at international direct dial rates. If you do not wish to be charged, please hang up now. I hope I'm financing space exploration with this. Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University is a private university with its main campuses in Daytona Beach, Florida and Prescott, Arizona. It is the largest accredited university system specializing in aviation and aerospace and The oldest one, they say. So I wanted to talk with a professor about education, educating new generations for future space industries, the tough fields, the hardships, the willingness to sit down for a couple of years and work hard, and so on and so forth. And I found one. Yes. (laughs) At some point, I got connected with Sarah Langston, at the Applied Aviation Sciences Department, who welcomed me in her COVID-19 safe home office environment.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's my pleasure. <laughs> so how long do you think this podcast will ultimately be? Like, still an hour or is it going to extend? So I will forewarn anybody I know who wants to <laughs> listen to it.
0: For some reason, we kicked this off by chatting about Sarah's own space dreams.
1: Well... I'd like to do a little bit of everything.
0: Even go to Mars?
1: I would like to go beyond Mars. My running joke was that I used to always say uh, in college, oh, I wanted to go to Mars. I want to be one of the first people to go to Mars. And then, But if you look at it today, so many people want to go to Mars. And I'm like, no, Mars is going to be too noisy now. I, I, I want to go somewhere where there's fewer people. I want to explore just to be the first person to see something um or even just to for you to experience something for the first time especially something as uh with the magnitude and the uh the mystery of space and other celestial bodies i think that's an amazing experience
0: i like that i mean like the ease a professor can talk about such dreams openly these days and not being ridiculed right away a lot has changed in the past 30 years if my physics teacher had told me this, I would probably have thought differently of him, and not in a good way. A good sign that we're onto something, that the social groundwork has been laid, so to say.
1: Yeah, um, I, I think that's the ideal. I don't want to put any time frame on anything. Um, and obviously we want to do this in a, I think everybody's very eager to accomplish uh, space flight and private spaceflight capabilities, but we obviously want to do it in the safest way possible. Um, I, but I also don't think this is anything new. I mean, we can go back hundreds of years, you can go back thousands of years and look at uh, creative writings and literature and see stories and mythologies about humans expanding beyond the Earth's mm-hmm. atmosphere. First of all, it's flight, right? Just human capabilities mm-hmm. fly in our, in our air um, atmosphere, but then also beyond that and going to different planets. And I think it's this concept of I mean, what is science, but asking, you know, what is it that we observe in the world and how do we relate to it and, mm-hmm. and the concept of where do we do we fit in that? And I think space, like today, is just a continuation of that same interest and that same core concept.
0: Curiosity. Yes. And, of course, I wanted to know if the professor, Sarah, had some sympathy for what Nicole Stott went through when she, back in the day, started to become an astronaut
1: um i i understand what she what she said um i'm actually in the college of aviation not the college of engineering but Mm -hmm. i can understand how challenging the engineering program is having Mm -hmm. that been my focus um previously
0: so you know what this is all about and you can feel her pain
1: yes it's a lot of work and a lot of math (laughs) so i think um, so what's I think it's, it's a very interesting, um, experience for students to encounter. You go into college thinking that you want to do a certain job or perhaps you have a certain career path. Like, I want to work on a mission to Mars. Like, you have that idea mm-hmm. of what you want to do. And then when you actually, uh, get to the university and you start the program, you find out what are the actual requirements of the program. And sometimes those are going to be, um, components and uh disciplines that come easily to you and sometimes they'll be very challenging for mm-hmm. you. And then you'll have to reevaluate what it is exactly that you want to do. And even mm-hmm. if you want to stay in space, uh for instance, but perhaps there's too much math from the engineering, what are the other science and uh technical pathways to getting there?
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: or perhaps there are non-STEM related areas too, such as law, mm-hmm. policy, economics, business, um, human factors. Sure. Well that that goes to the to the science and technology as well.
0: This may be a super stupid question, but why do astronauts and people who go into space need to study all that? I mean, like they are not actively flying the aircraft, like in comparison to a pilot. So why is it necessary to study all that?
1: So not every astronaut who goes to space is a pilot, but you do Mm -hmm. have to learn uh, more than just your uh, special expertise, because you only have a limited amount of people that can go to space uh, based on our current mm-hmm. space transportation vehicles, as well as the ISS has a limited capacity for individuals. So you're going to need those astronauts to be able to um, you may be a medical doctor, but you may also be um, looking at uh, perhaps the psychological well-being. So th- this is beyond uh, mm-hmm. physical medicine. And then you may also be conducting other experiments. You need to also have a background in that. Um, communications is, there's gonna be certain tasks and functions that are gonna be important for everybody to be to know how to do um, so that doesn't mean everybody's a pilot per se but yes you do have to get basic training in um, the core functions of an, in any individual of what they would need to know to go to space
0: do you see a growing interest on the side of your students when it comes to all the things attached to space
1: I think there is. Uh, we do have an increased uh, influx of students every year. And I think there's a steady interest in that as well. And I do think, um, in college, you're looking at the topic of space flight from a more serious perspective and you're breaking it down into its disciplinary, um, perspectives and learning the different uh, functions and requirements under each discipline. And also for the forward-looking aspect that space technologies provides. Because space technologies mm-hmm. are always having to push the current status quo of our knowledge and sure. our expertise. So I think that aspiration and inspirational aspect of space flight is also something that is portrayed in media. Um, and that is also an exposure element. So I think that all adds to the continued interest as well as exponential growth of more, um, students and, uh, young people interested in space flight opportunities.
0: What classes do you teach?
1: So I teach uh five different classes right now. Um mm-hmm. four of them are related to space policy and regulation. Um I also mm-hmm. cover international space policy and law. So what are the international mm-hmm. treaty frameworks uh, I have an introductory class on that, and some of my classes are specifically tailored for uh, our students in our program, which is space flight Operations Program, but we also mm-hmm. have a minor or a concentration that students in, let's say, the engineering school, if they want to learn more about spaceflight, they can also take some of our courses and get a concentration in space flight. Mm-hmm. So I also teach some of those courses. One of those is an Introduction to Spaceflight. Flight. Um, and that's just a survey of the different aspects and components of spaceflight. But my primary <laughs> focus is the law, the policy, the regulations, and also ethical considerations for the use of space.
0: Why do you think that is important?
1: Well, it's important because uh, we have a treaty framework. There's five main treaties mm-hmm. that govern the use of space. And the first one, the Outer Space Treaty, was uh, adopted in 1967. But it, the mm-hmm. negotiations for that actually started with the launch of Sputnik. So it it took Mm -hmm. that long to develop the main principles and guidelines for the use and exploration of space. And then after Mm -hmm. that, we got more specific treaties um, that elaborate on those original principles in the Outer Space Treaty. And so Mm -hmm. basically, the Outer Space Treaty lays out the rules of the road for the use of space. And that's whether Mm -hmm. it's for scientific exploration, um, discovery and exploration, and or use so that use could be commercial it could mm-hmm. be nonprofit use it could also be commercial use that is fine but it has to be mm-hmm. for peaceful purposes that is what the treaty mm-hmm. stipulates
0: so if you come in peace and would like to find out more about the outer space treaty and whether your little project falls under its rules or regulations please go to the united nations office for outer space affairs my god i would die to own such a business card with my name on it
1: um space is all around us uh, because we mm-hmm. are on planet earth which is in space mm-hmm. and so any threat that comes from space is obviously um it poses a threat to the planet not just one mm. particular nation so there are mm-hmm. uh important concepts of international cooperation mutual assistance um as well as the uh making sure that you sh- uh, demonstrate um due regard to the interests of other states because outer space is seen as the province of all mankind, or as we like to say now, the province Mm -hmm. of all humankind. We're trying to Mm -hmm. change that gender language. And Mm -hmm. since it belongs to everybody, then we also have to take into account um, considerations of other states.
0: So we see a lot of friction between nations on earth. Is it different in space when it comes to negotiating new policies?
1: Well. There is a lot of discussion about the future of potential settlements in outer space and how mm-hmm. uh, perhaps a settlement on Mars if it's existing in a closed loop system um eventually perhaps uh they might want to become independent and create their own
0: mm-hmm.
1: Martian mm. nation or Martian planet. Sure. Now, we actually do have uh, a precept under international law that would allow for uh a country to claim its sovereignty its um to become autonomous and claim its its sovereignty. Mm-hmm. But there's criteria for doing that. You can't just do it willy-nilly. So you have to meet those criteria. So that is potential, that is a potential possibility for Mars. However, I would say we are very far from that um, occurring. And anybody who do does go up into space, whether you're talking about a spacecraft or whether you're talking about the astronauts aboard that spacecraft, both of that, the spacecraft and the astronaut, are citizens of the state of of where they come from. And also the Mm -hmm. spacecraft could be registered somewhere else. So we have the International Space Station, for instance, that um, each module comes from a different country and it's registered from that different Mm -hmm. country. So for all intents and purposes, you have uh, different state territory up there in space. And there's an agreement that allows for astronauts to use the segments from other countries. Um, But there's an agreement. For that.
0: Do astronauts need to bring passports when entering the space station?
1: Not, no, not that I'm aware of. I've never been asked that question before. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, like they're going from one country to another, perhaps? Uh, te- or
1: te- technically, is it not auto- technically, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, yeah, it's considered quasi-terrorism. So no
0: one, no one has asked that question.
1: (laughs) No, because, um, the reason for this is the ISS is special. Like we do use it as an analogy, but it is special because it's number one, it's an intergovernmental enterprise. So it's, um, It's established by agencies from different states, and there is an IGA, or Intergovernmental Agreement, that Mm. governs um, the establishment, the operations, and the use of the ISS. So that's a little bit different than, let's say, um, private companies putting up uh, a hotel or something else in Earth orbit or creating a private space station.
0: They would probably require a passport at the register.
1: I, I, I don't think so. I don't think in space. I think all of that stuff, just, just like when we talk about the governance of people mm-hmm. going to space, all of that really happens sure. on Earth before you let them go up right. there. <laughs> you want to make sure you right. do all those checks and controls Uh Paperwork. <laughs> Yes, yes. But we're, we're okay. very far from needing that kind of uh, mechanisms. Normally, that's going to happen right. way, way in advance of selecting individuals to go to space.
0: Right. Say, is it still possible to buy land on the moon? Or was that an urban myth?
1: That is an urban myth. Yes. (laughs) Is it? It has never been. So, the guy who sold
0: land land on the moon was just a very smart person who Ah. sold something he was never allowed to sell?
1: So, that is a very interesting question. There actually have been a couple attempts. Of people who have tried to claim celestial bodies, right? There was a woman in Spain Mm. who tried to claim that she owned the sun and wanted to charge everybody a (laughs) tax based on the energy of the sun.
0: (laughs) Is is that serious?
1: She tried to sue and the court threw it out.
0: I looked the story up on the internet and here's what I found Maria Angeles Duran is a Spanish woman who claims to own the sun. She first claimed ownership of our parent star in 2010 after she realized that another guy was making a fortune-selling land on the moon. In 2013, she opened an eBay account, where she sold one-square-meter plots for the sun for a euro. Buyers got her certificate for the plot, but there was no mention of how they knew which part of the sun their plot was located on eBay didn't think someone could own plots of the sun and banned Duran's account for selling intangible goods. Duran disagreed. She got her lawyers and pressed charges against eBay. Her argument was that she could sell land on the sun, a natural resource, if others could sell other natural resources like water and wind. The little project got thrown out of the court.
1: Because there were no grounds for that. Um, that was a couple years ago. How? And the same question has arisen with regards to can you, uh, can you name a star after you or an asteroid after you for money? And the International Astronomical Union says no, you cannot sell names. That is mm. against, um, public policy. And the same with the moon, the moon and celestial bodies, as well as outer space and orbits, you cannot appropriate it. This is Article two of the Outer Space Treaty. You cannot claim mm. that as territory. So if states cannot claim it as territory, then civilians certainly cannot claim a property ownership to it. And if they can't claim the property ownership to it, then what are they selling? They're selling a piece of paper that can say whatever they want, but A, it could be considered fraud if the customer literally believes that and the person who's trying to sell it makes them believe that it's true. Um, but most people, I think, at this point in time should know that if you name a piece of the moon after you or you claim to purchase territory out in space that you're doing this for fun and there is no legal significance to it
0: a quick google search on buying land on the moon produces more than fifty thousand results lunar registry lunar embassy moon states lunar land hello legal world care for some extra money
1: it's not really not really a lucrative business no Okay. Uh, th- th- these cases, they would get thrown out of court. There's no ground to even do this. The only thing okay. I could say is perhaps there's um, a criminal law aspect if it is indeed fraud. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think this is what a lot of our students are learning too, is that they read a lot of, and this is part of the educational process mm-hmm. too, is that you mm-hmm. can read so many amazing or crazy stories out um, in the, in public media, social media, news media. That doesn't make it true. Right. And also, the way they present something isn't necessarily um, like how many times have we read a salacious headline and you're like, Ooh, I want to know that. And you go to read the article and Mm. then it doesn't say anything remotely close to what the headline said. Mm. Um, So I think that's one of the things that we're also training, or at least I'm training my students in my classes, is to critically read and then to critically analyze anything they read.
0: Hmm. I'm wondering if younger digital native generations have an awareness, an inborn awareness for digital bullshit? Because they've grown up with it. Or is it just the other way around that they cannot differentiate because they have never experienced anything different?
1: It's it's a very interesting question. And I think it's, um, we could keep some humor with it, but I think it's also a very solemn question because it's one of the benefits of information and in, our world today, is that we have access to so much information. But with Mm -hmm. that access, you also then have, I think, a moral duty to filter through that and to not continue sharing false information. I I think that actually is a challenge for our students today is to, Mm -hmm. just because you have access to that information doesn't mean it's correct information. So it
0: could even mean that growing up in that world and having never seen The world before the arrival of the Internet and the proliferation of information is a hindrance to developing critical attitude to those Hmm, things. Right. So what do you think?
1: I think students today, unfortunately, have been trained um, that they need to get spoon fed a bunch of information. They need to memorize that and then spit that right back out. And while that accumulation of knowledge is good, I think they are finding out in college now that they have to also be responsible for acquiring that information, that not everything will come to them spoon-fed. So that means critical thinking and also the research skills to be able to go and find information, because that's one of the downsides of having so much uh, information available. The first uh, source for anybody to go look something up now is Wikipedia. Which we know is mm. open sourced information, which is great on one hand, sure. but is not necessarily accurate on the other. So again, teaching what are the resource, um, what are the resources available to you? What are the different formats? And then what are the skills? How do you develop keyword searches? And part of this is because when you go out to the uh, to the space field and you get a job, let's say with a, a space startup, they might send you. You might be a technical person or an mm-hmm. engineer, mm-hmm. but they you might have to wear several hats and they might send you to uh to Congress or to the Capitol Hill and listen to hearings that involve the activities um that you want to do. And then you you have to be able to take that information and bring it back and debrief your people. So basic skills of synthesis, analysis, and communication and how to communicate that effectively, I think, are Mm -hmm. key skills. So these are kind of the soft skills that also flow into the technical requirements that are required Mm -hmm. for a job Mm -hmm. in the space field. Mm -hmm. Are you a tough teacher? Ah, (laughs) I (laughs) guess it depends on who you ask. I think my students would probably say I'm a tough grader. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Accuracy is really important to me um, because Mm -hmm. I think... When it comes to law and policy, if you mess up, your company's in trouble. So that's mm-hmm. really important. Attention to detail is everything. But also if you are working on a rocket, attention to detail is everything. You mess up with mm-hmm. the amount of fuel or with, um, you know, the t- technical work, your rocket can explode. So mm-hmm. I think attention to detail is very important. And I think it's a skill set that is better to learn in the confines of the safe, academic environment mm-hmm. than out in mm-hmm. the workplace. So I'm, I yes, I am pretty um, strict on that, but generally I try to be the, I like to learn. I've always liked to learn. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I always worked throughout my college uh, experiences as well. So I do try to be mindful of students um, who may have other, have a very heavy uh, school workload mm-hmm. or perhaps are working as well. And I do try to give the information in a clear, uh, clear way. Um, so I do I do try to be very systematic in how I teach, but mm-hmm. at the same time encourage the critical thinking and analysis skills. So not everything can be mm-hmm. spoon fed. Some things you have to think about and um, metabolize it within yourself to make mm-hmm. sense of it.
0: Regardless of this discussion, and I'm sure we could discuss this here with both sides until the twelfth of never. One fact remains: space does not care about our feeble human issues. Whoever wants to do business with space needs to speak its language, no matter how this language finds its way into our brains.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I think probably every educate. I can only speak to myself and how I teach. Um, and, and sometimes I will prep the students and say, I'm going to say something that will probably offend you. But, you know, I'm going to say Mars doesn't care about your human rights. It doesn't care what, what you think, what you believe, uh, mm-hmm. what you feel. Because oftentimes when I ask questions, students first response is, well, I, I, I feel that it should be X. And I'm like, mm-hmm. why do I care about your feelings? And again, mm-hmm. I, I do clarify. I'm not saying this to be rude. I'm saying this mm-hmm. because you need to understand that on a societal level, you might expect other people to care about your feelings. But when it comes to technical requirements or job functions that you need to fulfill, and especially when you're working in ultra hazardous uh, field mm-hmm. and space flight is an ultra hazardous activity, and then mm-hmm. you're going to uh, an environment out in space that essentially wants to kill you, then you cannot just um, go according to your feelings or your beliefs or even your thoughts. You have to go according to what is, what are the facts And uh, what are my frameworks for behavior? Do I have rules of the road? And how do I get along with others? Because your survival is ultimately going to be based on how well um, you can coordinate and work with the other crew um, that you're with.
0: Wonderful. Suddenly, our conversation had reached a moment where we were at a point where we focused our interest on the question as to if man can or should do whatever he can do. Should we, quote-unquote, torture our students with a growing load of knowledge? Should we fly to Mars? Should we mine asteroids? Ethical behavior is en vogue these days. Ethics commissions are set up. The 2,000-year-old philosophical discipline has become a buzzword these days. But how can such an approach establish itself in a profit-driven world Worried is more about what and how, and rarely about why we do something.
1: I think that's it's a fabulous question. And um I do want to unpack it a little bit because there's so much to that question. And I, I love ethics. Ethics is the study of what ought to be done. That's that's really mm-hmm. what ethics is. And mm-hmm. I think it's a mm-hmm. sandbox for so many ideas. But having said that, um, ethics is all around us. Right, every decision we make is based on some kind of framework. So, in 2014, the Institute of Medicine, which is an institute under the National Academies, put out a policy, and it was the first time that NASA—this was for um, NASA—it was the first time that they looked at ethical decision-making for long-duration human spaceflight. Mm. And so, they actually did bring in philosophers and ethicists and looked at what are the different schools of thought because when we talk about philosophy it's not just one you know it's not like this monolith of uh mm. here, here's monopoly on critical thinking it's really different schools of thought that address um the question from different angles and different interests and different priorities um and so you can come up with different answers depending on which school of thought you are applying and so, so they did look at that and they decided that they could not they could not look at ethics too much from a philosophical school of thought issue. They had to look at what are the mid-level ethics. What are the le- what are what is that level of, of ethics? What are those standards? Because ethics is the study of what ought to be done. What are those studies that ought to be done that everybody agrees with? And so they found this mm-hmm. level of ethics, these questions um, or these issues that everybody will agree on. And so they put out, um, I believe it's six criteria. Um, That should be part of an ethical decision-making framework for long-duration human spaceflight.
0: I looked them up. Here you go, beautiful space nerds. Avoid harm by preventing harm. Exercising caution and removing or mitigating harms that occur. Provide benefits to society. Seek a favorable and acceptable balance of risk of harm and potential for benefit. Respect autonomy by allowing individual astronauts to make voluntary decisions regarding participation in proposed missions. Ensure fair processes and provide equality of opportunity for mission participation and crew selection. Recognize fidelity and individual sacrifices made for the benefit of society, as well as honor societal obligations in return. By offering health care and protection for astronauts during missions and over the course of their lifetimes.
1: So this only applies to NASA. That's not going to apply to necessarily to the commercial side. But in my writings and my research, I actually did adopt those standards and I tried to apply them to the commercial side. So some of those are how do we um, how do we address individual autonomy? So whether it's astronauts or commercial or government sponsored. Do they have a right to say, no, I don't want to go on a spacewalk or no, I don't mm-hmm. want to do what you're asking me to do? At what point mm-hmm. do they cease to be an employee and have their own individual autonomy recognized and respected? Um, fidelity, too, is another one, right, that you're going mm-hmm. to um, that the employer, whether it's NASA or a commercial company, that they're actually going to honor the contributions of that individual, too. Um, and not just treat them as another uh, as another spoke in the wheel just, you know, to serve mm-hmm. their interests.
0: It quickly turned out that we could have gone on for ages with this. And we should go on for ages with this, I guess, because as it turns out, our human faculties are evolving at such a rapid pace that we're struggling to keep up with a fruitful debate when it comes to their employment. So we decided to ask you if you want to dive a little deeper into this. Let us know at Space Cafe Podcast. And tell us if you want more good ethic stuff. Back to the show. Sarah, any recommendations for young adults yet undecided as to their future careers? Any recommendations from your side when it comes to your field of work and expertise?
1: Um, Probably the best piece of advice or the piece of advice I wish somebody had told me is I was very driven. I was very focused on what I wanted and it didn't exist at the time when I wanted to be mm-hmm. a space lawyer, 2005, 2006, there, there wasn't any opportunities. Mm-hmm. We were just barely talking about some of these issues. Um, so I would say, stay open, stay open, stay flexible. And remember that whatever you have an idea of a job that you want to do now, it will probably be different five years from now. So don't lock yourself into it. And that is, that may be seen as a challenge, but that's actually the benefit um, that we enjoy today is that there is room for opportunity. And perhaps you will create your own job, your job title, uh, your job mission. Perhaps you will be the one to create that. So stay open to that. Uh-huh. Learn as much as you can on everything. Um, and then you will find a way to pull that together and make a valuable contribution to the space field and the space industry.
0: And of course, we had a last question for Sarah. Sarah that you guys out there already know. You know what I'm trying to get at, right? Space Espresso, of course. A spontaneous story our guests freely associate with science or space and are ready to share with us.
1: These are the toughest questions. <laughs> this is the toughest this question of the show. This is why we're asking them. <laughs> you know, one one that pops up, I guess there's so many important things, you know, that... Could pop into mind. One of the most interesting, my first piece that I published on the conversation, I was re- researching diversity and looking at uh, NASA implementing diversity policies in its new Artemis program. And uh, one of the things that caught my interest was the the stories about the rovers on Mars and how they all have different aspirational names, right? You have Curiosity, Discovery, and so forth. But what I didn't know, and when I found out in my research, was that it's actually three women who write the social media for uh, for these Mm. uh, rovers and so here we have a a robot which doesn't have a personality in and of itself right it's it's a piece of technology but you have humans that are imparting a personality and through twitter reaching millions of people around the world Mm -hmm. and sharing the science and sharing the exploration and the discoveries um, through social media
0: humanizing the machines
1: yes but what are the stories of those people who are humanizing the machines I think that is a very interesting question, and I wish there was an interview of of those people.
0: Beautiful. Thanks for pointing us in that direction. (laughs) Um, All right, Sarah, thank you so much. Um, Dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed this show the same way I did. Um, Again, if you have any comments and questions, please do not hesitate getting in touch with us. And other than that, Sarah, thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having (laughs) me. (laughs) Thank you. And dear listeners, thanks for taking the time. And talk again and listen again in two weeks. Thank you.
1: Yes.